But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person 
to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Well, if you listen to Stan's reading and it sounded familiar to you, that's because we already read it last week and we preached on that passage last week. We're going to take another go on the same passage. Because last week, uh, it's a it's a big passage, it's a, there's some complexity to it. And so we looked at it in detail, and I wanted to leave another sermon on application. I wanted just to hold off and, and wait until we can spend some time on applying that passage. Now last week we learned that there are false teachers that come from within the church, and they promote destructive heresies false teachings that actually lead people away from God, away from the right life. And while it's appropriate to focus on specific false teachings, and the Bible does that, and Peter is going to do that in chapter 3 of this book, here Peter chooses to focus on their character, on the character of a false teacher, and exposing their sensuality, greed, and rejection of authority, and thus making this passage relevant to any false teaching. The apostle assures us that the future of false teachers is certain, and it is judgment. So today, I want to look at, take another look at the same passage, but from a very different angle. So if you remember an illustration we used last week of a bomb falling accidentally in North Carolina, we're going to try to disarm the bomb. We're going to try to really focus our attention on how to resist how to defend ourselves and our church from false teachings, how to be vigilant and aware of possible false teachings and false teachers, because that is really what Peter's concern here is. Okay, our outline is simple. In fact, it's simpler than usual. Here's what we need to do to resist falling prey to false teachers. Number one, know the Word. Number two, know the Word. And number three, can you guess? Know the Word, yes. I'm not just repeating the same command, or nor have I run out of things to say this morning. (laughs) Some of you may be thinking, you should have just preached once on that passage and maybe not try to stretch it out. No, I actually mean three separate types of knowledge. So the command is the same, know the Word, but you know the Word in different ways. We know the word intellectually, and we'll talk about knowing the Bible, understanding what it says, and knowing what it says. 
But then there's also the second kind of knowledge, which is practical, experiential knowledge. It's putting that Bible knowledge into practice and actually living according to God's Word. And then there's the final, the third type of knowledge that I want to address this morning, which is personal, relational knowledge of the Word, the incarnate Word, the living Word, the person of Jesus Christ. So know the Word intellectually, know the Word experientially and practically, and know the Word the person, personally. Okay, so if we want to defend against false teaching, it is critical, it's essential, it's indispensable that we know the Bible. Now look at how Peter himself uses the Bible in this chapter. Now he's addressing false teachers and false teachings, but he does it by using the Bible. In verse 1, for example, He recalls that there were false prophets in Israel, and so the rise of false teachers in the church is not unusual to him because he's read about it in the Bible. He's read about it in the Old Testament. In verses 4 through 10, he uses three biblical examples. The judgment of the angels, most likely referencing Genesis 6. The flood and the preservation of Noah and his family from Genesis 6 through 9. And then the third example is the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the rescue of Lot, and that's from Genesis 19. So he's thinking Genesis. He's remembering chapter after chapter of Genesis, the first book in the Bible. And then in verses 15 through 16, Peter recalls the story of Balaam. This is Numbers 22 through 24, the story of Balaam, this prophet that Balak, a pagan king, hired to curse Israel. And then in verse 22, Peter quotes Proverbs 26, 11, the dog always returns to its vomit. Now, of course, there are many other images and indirect references and allusions to the Old Testament and to the words of Jesus himself in this passage, in this chapter, where he is dealing with false teachers. So Peter naturally, almost effortlessly, is using his own knowledge of the Bible to expose the destructive heresies of the false teachers of his time. It comes naturally to him to do that because he has been immersed in the Bible. The way he writes, he writes with biblical language and ideas and words. He's remembering things from his reading. He's correlating different ideas together. He's connecting the dots. Biblical truth is used to confront the false words used to exploit others and blaspheme the way of truth. Now, the word false in false words in verse 3 means fabricated or made up or fashioned or molded in clay or wax. Now, this is the word that we get our English word from, English word plastic from. So these are plastic words. These are fake, constructed, molded, fashioned, made-up words to deceive us, to trick us, to exploit us. So instead of real, true words from Scripture, these false teachers trick their followers with plastic copies. They make up teachings that seem real, but if you look closely enough and if you compare it to the real thing, you will know that they are just copies, counterfeit copies. Of course, we must be familiar 
with the real thing, with the real Word of God, in order to spot a counterfeit. I remember when I lived in Kiev, uh, many people were reading a particular series of mysteries. And so whenever the new book would come, you know, people would gather and go to a bookstore, or in our case was a kind of an open-air book market, and we would buy the next book. And many people would look for that next installment. Well, some people figured out that there's money to be made on this, and you didn't have to write the book. You can just sort of take different parts of all these various books, paste them together, put a cover on that kind of looks like part of that series, and, and people would still buy it. Now, if you've read any of the books in the series, when you would buy that counterfeit book, from the first page you would know it's not the real thing. It seems like it, it feels like it, it's using the same words and it's using the same images on the cover, but it's not the real book. Now, if you had read those books, you'd know that immediately. If you hadn't read them, I think it would take you a while to figure out that it's a forgery, it's a counterfeit, that it doesn't even make sense, the plot doesn't, doesn't stick together. Now, the same thing is with Scripture. If you're familiar with the Bible, it's easy to spot a counterfeit. In fact, often you don't even know what's wrong exactly with the false teaching, but you know it's false. You develop an intuition. There's a sense that develops when you're familiar with the Scriptures that even though you can't quite put your finger on it just yet, but you already know it doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound exactly like the Bible. It's maybe using the same words. It's maybe even stringing different verses together, but it doesn't sound quite right. Now, I don't know if you've ever come across the black Hebrew Israelites. They're more prevalent in the city, and they prey on churchgoers. It's a sect, it's a false teaching that specifically tries to exploit churchgoers who don't know their Bibles. So what they would do, it typically would be, and you can go on YouTube and watch it, it's, there's an entertainment part to that, but it's actually very dangerous. But you would have maybe three men standing on a street corner. One of them would be kind of the leader trying to get people's attention and trying to engage Christians in, or at least churchgoers, in conversation in an argument. And then he would have maybe one or two people around him that would just stand with open Bibles and read. So he would make an argument, then he would turn to one of his associates and he would say, read. And he would say, from the book of Matthew, and it's very loud, you know, and he would read the scriptures. And it's very hard to, to engage in that conversation because there's a specific scheme, there's a specific pattern. Specific verses are pulled together, pulled out of context, gathered in a certain order. And so somebody who's not familiar with scripture, who has not read Matthew, for example, who doesn't understand how the Old Testament and the New Testament fit together, could be easily deceived by it because they read from the Scriptures. And they read so forcefully with such authority that you figure, well, they seem to know what they're talking about. And the only way to, to really understand and reject that is to know what Scripture actually says and how those verses fit together in the right way and why certain things are resolved in the New Testament that were presented in the Old Testament, and how Jesus fulfills the law, and what is the role of the law for our lives today. All those things are answered in the Scriptures. And if you know the Scriptures, then you can resist that kind of false teaching. 
There's a story told about a young boy who wanted to learn to work with jade, this precious stone. And so he went to this old master in his village, and he says, Master, teach me how to work with jade. And the master gave him a piece of the precious stone and told him, you hold it tightly. And then he just started talking about all sorts of things, politics, family, village news. And the boy sat there and listened for an hour, and then the master said, you come back next day. And the same thing happened. He gives him the stone to hold, and, and then he talks about all sorts of things. And it went on for days and weeks, and the boy was getting frustrated because he felt like he's not really learned anything from this master. He's just wasting his time. And so finally, the boy came and thought, well, this, this is, if he does the same thing, if he just hands me the same stone and talks about the same stuff again, I'm just going to tell him I can't be his disciple. And so the same thing happens. The master hands him a stone, and the boy holds it tightly and quickly realizes it without even looking that that's not the same stone, that it's not jade. It doesn't feel like it. And so what has he learned through all those weeks of training? He learned what it feels like, what it is. And now anytime he, he gets to touch something that isn't it, he's going to know it. Now the same thing with Christians. There, there's, there's a sense that develops when you read the Scriptures that when somebody gives you something that isn't biblical, you kind of know it just doesn't feel right. It's not, it's not the right thing. Let me quote from a classic movie, Taken, with Liam Neeson. It's, a, it's classic because it's a classic of the Jerry Action Genre. Have you heard that term, geriatric? Geriatric action. That's the. It's one of the the better ones from the, the genre. And actually, this is the second time I'm quoting Liam Neeson this week. You may need to worry a little bit about me, <clears throat> but there's a scene where Liam Neeson, who's trying to find his daughter, doesn't matter what the what the plot is really, not for this illustration. <clears throat> he finds an old friend who had kind of retired from the business, I'm assuming as the business of killing or something like that. And this Frenchman, Jean-Claude, turns out to be the key for Neeson to find his daughter. <clears throat> and so he goes to Jean-Claude's house, welcomed by his family. Jean-Claude comes from work, is surprised to see Liam Neeson, knows that he is involved and and there's going to be a reckoning there. And at a dramatic point in that, in that scene, Jean-Claude pulls out his gun that he went to retrieve from the bathroom. He pulls it out. He points it at Neeson and then realizes as he tries to shoot him that there are no bullets in the gun. And this, was, this is where Neeson says his immortal quote. <clears throat> That's what happens when you sit behind a desk. You forget things like the weight in the hand of a gun that's loaded and one that's not. The point being is that he simply is not used to holding the gun anymore, and so he doesn't know what it feels like. And how many Christians who maybe started well and studied the Bible and read the Bible and knew the Bible eventually just got out of habit of reading it? And so now when they're presented with an argument or they're presented with an idea, they're no longer used to defending it. 
They no longer know what it's supposed to feel like, whether it's true or not. They lost that, that sense, that connection, that immersion in God's Word. We need to know the Scriptures. So as a way of application, if you are a Christian who's not reading the Bible, you need to start reading the Bible right now, today. You need to start today. You need to figure out a way that you will read it regularly and not just read it. Think about it. Try to understand it. Meditate on it. Memorize it. Do all the things that you need to do. Study it so you can know what it says and intellectually understand the Scriptures. So that when presented with a false teaching, you will know immediately that it's false because you know what's real. Now, secondly, know the Word. Know the Word practically or experientially. Once more, I want to point out something that stood out to me in this chapter, and I shared it with you last week, that Peter's emphasis is not so much specifically on the false teachings, even though he talks about certain things that they don't believe right, but he's focusing on the character and lifestyle of the false teachers. Now look at verse 14. Peter says that the false teachers entice unsteady souls. And verse 18 says that they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. So the point here is that through their lifestyle, through their example, through what they offer is the right way to live, they are taking people who are unstable, who are not as rooted in the Scriptures, who are not as rooted in the Christian life. And so those early Christians, those new Christians that had, they had just separated from their pagan neighbors, they had just realized that they don't need to live like their pagan neighbors and now they're being caught in the lies of these false teachers. And because of their instability, they're enticed, and they actually end up following him, manipulated by them into following them. Now, these are new believers in context here, those who have not been established in the truth just yet. But, of course, we know that, tragically, there are many Christians who have been in the faith for many years but are still unstable and susceptible to be exploited by false teachers. And often it doesn't come through doctrine, it actually comes through lifestyle, through example. Their instability doesn't just come from the lack of knowledge of the Bible, as we've just discussed, but they're unstable because they don't know how to apply the Bible. They're not being shaped by the Bible. Now there's a difference between knowing what the Bible says and then applying what the Bible says. To know something means not only to understand the information, but also to put that information into practice. Now look at verse 2. Peter contrasts two things, but they're not typically things you would think should be contrasted. In verse 2, there's sensuality. That's what they're enticing their followers with. But it's contrasted with the way of truth. Not with the way of godliness, not with the way of purity, not the way of holiness, but the way of truth. Meaning the truth isn't just intellectual, but truth is practical and, and experiential. It's the way of false living, not just the, the false believing that stands against the way of truth. Once we know something, it's not enough just to say, I know it. 
It's not enough just to be able to recite what something says or someone says. We have to apply it. To really know something means to live according to it. My grandmother taught chemistry at university. Let me see if I can translate the name right. It's the Kiev Civic Engineer and Aviation University, I think. That's right. So she taught chemistry, organic chemistry of fuel. And she knew her stuff. Obviously, she was a good, good teacher. But she was also known for removing stains from her children and grandchildren's clothing. Because she knew chemistry, she was the person we would all go to and say, okay, I got this stain, and she would ask, well, what is it? <laughs> we would tell her what it is if we knew. And then she'd be able to find another thing that would help to loosen that stain and remove it from your clothing. Of course, not even such a skilled chemist as she was was able to remove my tar stains from my light green ensemble that I wore one day mistakenly outside. <clears throat> she knew chemistry. When you, when you ask somebody, do you know construction? You're not just asking if they know the plans, right? Or if they understand how houses are put together. You're also wondering if they can do stuff. If they understand how to live according to that knowledge. And so for a Christian, we are not just Bible students, but we also live the Bible. If I say I know the Bible, what I mean is that I know not just what it says, but how to live in accordance with it. We are revamping our adult Sunday school program. It's actually already kind of happened, and then we'll tweak it as we go, and I'll be talking more about it. But the idea is to move maybe away from just the content-based curriculum, and so we want you to learn this knowledge and learn this information to more of an idea of spiritual formation so that the knowledge that is passed on is actually carefully curated and meant to affect your life. So we have divided our various classes into four categories. There's sound doctrine, which will help you understand what the Bible teaches. That's primarily intellectual knowledge. Then there's Christian vocation. So we'll talk about things like marriage and work. That's applying the Bible. There are spiritual practices. That's the third area. Meaning, how do we pray? How do we know God? How do we grow? And then finally, there is missional living. How do we apply it in relation to the outside world? How do we live it out in difficult circumstances, in ministry, or at work, or even at home? Now, the idea is that all those elements are needed for our lives to be changed and shaped by the Bible. We're supposed to be formed into different kinds of people if we really understand and trust the Bible and apply it. So this Lent, this Lent season will have a class on developing the rule of life. The rule of life, it's, it's an old term that basically means intentionally pursuing God in your life and organizing your life in a certain way to seek Him and to obey Him. Now, many of you are having quiet times every day. That's part of your rule of life. You've placed something in your life that allows you to spend time in prayer and Bible reading, and that's become part of your routine, part of your day, part of your schedule. Many of you come to church every Sunday. That's part of your rule of life. You have organized your life in a way that allows you to apply the Bible and to be shaped 
buy it. Well, there's many other things you can do, and as we grow and everybody gets to tweak it and change it and add it and subtract it, so we'll be talking about it during Lent in Sunday school. But all of that is meant to help us to bring the Bible into life and not just leave it on an intellectual level. Now, intellectual level is necessary, it's important, but the Bible isn't meant to stay there. You have to bring it down into your life and let it shape you. Now, let me give you another example. Last week, I used the growing acceptance by Christians of the current cultural LGBTQ ideology and practice as as an example of false teaching. So when Christians in the church, when Christian leaders are saying, it's okay to follow your sensuality, it's okay to define yourself according to what you think your sexual identity is, many Bible churches, including us, are saying that is a false teaching, and those who propagate it is a false, they're false teachers. So we reject, for example, we reject homosexuality as sinful and unbiblical. That's just scriptural. We're just reading our Bibles and we're applying it. And as we consider those who promote it in the church, we say that's wrong, that's a false teaching. However, we also know that lust is an issue in our Bible-believing churches. You see, this issue is not just out there somewhere. It's, it's here. And so if we say we know the Bible and we preach against specific sins, but we don't address them in our own midst, do we really know the Bible? It's not enough to know the Bible to condemn sinners in the world. We also need to know it to condemn and repent of the sin in the church. Now, it's possible to win a culture war and lose a spiritual battle. And unfortunately, there are plenty of examples of Christian leaders preaching against lust of defiling passion, just like Peter is describing here. They're preaching against the lust of defiling passion in the culture only to be exposed themselves as being dominated by lust. You're all thinking about names. It's not uncommon. We cannot claim to know the truth if we don't practice it. So to know what's right, to have the right theological position, to have the right social position is good. It's important. We need to do that. We need to know what the Bible teaches. But let's not stop there. Let's take the next step, which is now we need to apply it. So if we rail against the lust in the world, let's address the issue of pornography in the church, right? You can't do both. You have to look at ourselves. We have to look at ourselves as much as we look at the world. And we must apply the truth. For us to really know the word is not enough just to know it intellectually. We have to know it experientially. Now, let me also say that being shaped by the Bible is not limited to behaving in line with its teaching. It's not just the behavior. It also includes reflecting its teachings in our attitudes, our character, our priorities. It has to do with how we engage with the world, how we see ourselves, how we carry ourselves. See, the Bible is not just telling us how to live, but it's shaping us, it's, it's transforming us into a certain kind of person. I'm talking about humility. 
gracious posture toward others, quickness to forgive, truthfulness, concern with God's glory and not our own. I'm talking about the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are all the qualities that are developed in us by the Holy Spirit as we submit ourselves to His Word. Not just to know it, but be transformed by it. And this kind of transformative knowledge is not possible without the relationship with Jesus Christ, the living Word of God. And that's our last point. Know the Word, but know Him. Know Jesus the Word. Know Him personally, relationally. Now here's where I see it in our text. In verse 1, Peter says that these false teachers are denying the Master who bought them. That's Jesus. They're denying the Master who bought them. By their destructive heresies and sinful practices, they are rejecting their relationship with Jesus, who loved them and gave himself for them. And then look at verse 20. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. Now Peter says that the way to escape the defilements of the world, the way to be transformed from a person who lives by worldly standards and does worldly things that are godless, lawless things. The way to do that is through the personal knowledge of Jesus. What changes us, what actually breaks us away from the world, what breaks us away from sin, away from falsehood, is Jesus and our knowledge of Him. Our experience of Him. See, our relationship of Him. All heresies are fundamentally about Christ. Now, as you're looking through, working through the list of heresies in your mind, right? Uh, there's a church father who wrote a book about a hundred heresies briefly, he said. It's a book about a hundred heresies briefly. So as you're looking through that list, think about it. There are obviously some, some heresies that are directly related to Christ. There are people who reject his deity or reject his humanity or reject the virgin birth or reject the bodily resurrection of Christ. Now, those are obviously about Christ. But even those heresies that are not attacking Christ directly, they are still misrepresenting or denying something about him. For example, rejecting the authority of Scripture, saying this book isn't all true. There's parts of it that are true, maybe, but not all of it is true. That's rejecting authority of Scripture. Is rejecting the authority of Christ, because that's His Word. And He relied on this Word, on this book, when He lived among us. Rejecting the doctrine of the Trinity is redefining Christ's nature. If you don't believe God is triune, there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, and one nature. If you, if you don't believe that, you're redefining who Jesus is. Who is he then? Is he another God, or is he his, maybe he's no God at all? Prosperity gospel, this idea that, that you can claim things and God just gives them to you. Whatever you want, you just have to have enough faith and claim it. That's distorting Christ's promises. That's abusing and distorting his promises. That's why it's wrong. 
teaching against God's sovereignty, is doubting the power and wisdom of Christ in whom all things hold together. Rejection of substitutionary atonement, the idea that Jesus paid for your sin on the cross, is rejection of Christ's grace to helpless sinners. And so by this definition, by my definition, all heresies is essentially or eventually Christological. It is somehow a rejection of Christ. It's somehow a rejection of relationship with Him, a rejection of who He is, or an attempt to twist it, or an attempt to change it, an attempt to adapt it to our own ideas. So last week I mentioned the triumph of fundamentalism over theological modernism or liberalism. Now this is going 100 years back. There was a battle in the Christian world. There were people who were fundamentalists who said that we need to trust the Bible. All these doctrines are true. All these words are true. We cannot adjust it no matter what the modern theologians say or the modern scientists say. They held tight to the Bible. And there was another group of people, they were called modernists at the time, who said, no, we can adjust it. We can, we can kind of make a new religion, a religion that is applicable to our time. We'll adjust the Bible to that. And I told, told you that over time, fundamentalist, fundamentalism triumphed over liberalism. Now, as we look at the Christian landscape, we don't see a lot of thriving liberal churches. They kind of died out. All, most of those seminaries closed because there's no life. It's an empty spring. It's just waterless cloud. There's nothing there. You've lost everything that was valuable by giving up on those important doctrines. And we see the triumph of truth, a triumph of intellectual truth and the authority of Scripture in that particular debate in history. The fundamentalists knew the Bible they believed what the Bible said, and they were serious about applying it to their lives. But it's this third kind of knowledge, the relational knowledge of the Lord, that was underdeveloped in many fundamentalist churches. And it naturally led to legalism. For many of us today, when we think about fundamentalism, we don't think about the glories of the biblical teaching, which is partly what we should be thinking of. We are grateful to them for preserving the authority of Scripture and the gospel. But most of us are thinking about legalism. We're thinking fundamentalist churches are churches where you can't dance and you have to wear certain kinds of pants and you can't have your beard too long. That's what we, a lot of us think. Because they focused on the intellectual knowledge of the Bible and they applied the Bible to their lives. They wanted strict lives according to Scripture. All of that is good so far. But they did it in some ways, some of them, many of them, I don't know the percentage, but enough that it became a trait of their movement is they divorced it from the experiential relational knowledge of Jesus as a person. And so what happened is the fundamentalists avoided the theological and practical errors of the modernists. But many of them were caught in the destructive heresy of legalism. Now, here's what legalism does. Legalism separates the law from the lawgiver. It sees God exclusively through the lens of the law and ultimately misses the point of the law altogether. Thus, legalism cannot thrive alongside the soul-satisfying communion with Christ. 
You actually physically cannot be a legalist if you are attached personally, experientially to Christ and your relationship with Him is satisfying your heart. You can't then go and be a legalist. It's impossible. You have to pick one or the other. Sinclair Ferguson wrote a book about legalism and antinomianism. Antinomianism is a term that we use for lawlessness, anti-law. So there's legalists on one side saying you have to keep the law for God to love you. And here's a list. And then there's the antinomians, lawless people who say you don't have to do anything you don't want to do. Christ doesn't care about your life. Do whatever you want to do. He's happy already. So Ferguson says that legalism and antinomianism have the same root. This is so insightful. When I read that a few years ago, I was like, this is exactly right. Because we, we usually put them on either side of the spectrum, and we say these are different. You get too into law or you get too into grace. But Ferguson says that they have the same root. He calls them non-identical twins that emerge from the same womb. And the womb is a distorted view of God. That's the womb. The root of both legalism and lawlessness is a distorted view of God. It's a lack of relationship with God. Now listen to Ferguson. Legalism is simply separating the law of God from the person of God. For what we often think of as legalism is in fact a symptom of an issue much bigger, more fundamental, more radical, and further reaching than the question of the role of the law. At that level, legalism and antinomianism seem to be simple opposites. All that is needed, it seems, is right doctrine. That's how many of us think about it. But the more basic issue is, how do I think about God? And what instincts and dispositions and affections toward Him does this evoke in me? At that level, legalism and antinomianism share a common root that has invaded not only the mind, but the heart, affections, and will. How we feel toward God as well as the doctrine of God we profess. Legalism sees Christ as requiring obedience to His law before we can be sure of His love. Law first, then love as reward. But lawlessness sees Christ as limiting His love to forgiveness, but not transformation. Legalism sees His grace as weak. I need to supplement it. I need to do more. It's not enough grace for me to please Him. But lawlessness sees His grace as cheap. It's already all taken care of. I don't have to worry about anything. I can do whatever I want. He doesn't care. But the truth of Scripture, rightly applied through the relationship with Christ, puts the law in the right perspective, in the right place. So to effectively resist all kinds of destructive heresies, we need to know the Word intellectually, practically, and personally. We need to taste and see that the Lord is good in order to resist sensuality. 
Our spiritual satisfaction can give us sufficient strength in sexual temptation. We need to marvel at the riches of Christ in order to resist greed. How do you not get greedy and materialistic? How do you resist that? You marvel at the riches of Christ. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That's how you resist greed. That's how you become generous. We need to know Christ in his humility in order to refuse to use our power in an abusive and manipulative way. This is a word to all church leaders. We need to always remember that in our leadership, we are reflecting Jesus, not the model of leadership we hear about or that we're taught to emulate, but Jesus himself. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count in quality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. We need to follow the Bible. We need to know its truths and conform our lives to them. But we also need to know Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. We need to take pleasure in our communion with the risen Christ, who in his grace shares his life with us. It's his life. We need to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. That's the challenge. Know the Bible intellectually. Follow it. Conform your life. Be shaped by it. But do it all in the context of relationship with the living word, Jesus himself. So as we come to the table, I want you to ask yourselves, and I'm asking myself as well, do I know the Bible? Am I committed to knowing it? Am I shaped by the Bible? Does my life reflect what the Bible teaches? And finally, and most importantly, do I know the Lord Jesus in a soul-satisfying, temptation-resisting, heresy-destroying kind of way? If you're a Christian, apply these three commands to your life today. If you're not a Christian, don't start in the order that I've given it to you. Start at the end. Start with the relationship with Christ. Because conversion, this first step towards God, becoming a Christian, does not begin with a transformed life. You don't go to Jesus and say, and say Here, Jesus, my life now conforms to the Bible. Accept me. That's legalism. Nor does it begin with doctrinal orthodoxy. I figured out all the doctrines, I know all the creeds, now I can come to Jesus. No, that'll come later. It comes with the relationship. It begins with the relationship with Him. We all come to Christ as sinners and heretics. 
And he welcomes us because he died and rose for us and is coming again.